this morning. Still no snow, even more of a greater blessing. Don't worry, it's coming soon, I reckon. So, Joshua chapter 10 this morning. I tell you, that music ministers in my spirit so much, I say it every time, you're probably tired of me saying it. I feel like I could just take a nap after I listen to them. So if you did a third one, you'd have to probably wake me up. That was real good. Joshua chapter, wow, 10. This morning, when you find Joshua chapter 10, I'll have you stand up, if you can, and stretch. Read a few verses here this morning. Joshua chapter 10. It never ceases to amaze me what the Lord has put in this little, tiny local church. Um, And I don't care if they like it or not. I'm amazed at the amount of talent the Lord has brought here. Uh, whether it's musical talent or uh, talent that God's given you to do something for him. And uh, I'm just thankful. And, uh, well, enough of me yapping. Let me read the Bible and give you something good here this morning. Let's pick this thing up here. Chapter 10 and verse number 15. Bible says here in Joshua chapter 10, verse number 15, And Joshua returned... And all Israel with him under the camp to Gilgal. But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hid in a cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave and set men by it for to keep them. And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies. And smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into the cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter, till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua and Makeda in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. By the way, you see that same phrase show up in Exodus. I believe it's around chapter 11 right before Israel's ready to get out of Egypt there, uh, none moved their tongue. Again, some real interesting, interesting phrase there. Verse 22, the Bible said, Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so, and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. It came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with them, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong and of of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterward Joshua smote them, and slew them, and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun, that Joshua commanded, and they took them down off the trees, and cast them into the cave, wherein they had been hid, and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. And of course, verse 28 all the way to 43 is the very boring account of the Southern Campaign. I say that tongue-in-cheek. There's actually quite a bit in there. We won't read that, but we will try to preach through it today. 
Brother Cole, appreciate you and your wife and little Becca and everything you do for us here. Would you ask the Lord's help in the preaching today? Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. I know we're really close to that day that they call Christmas and everything going on. And I was, I, was, uh, I was wondering what I should preach, but I couldn't get away from what we're preaching through. I really couldn't get away from it. So if you're expecting a, uh, a Christmas message, well, we'll tie a bow on the end of it and call it a present. Amen. But uh, uh, we're here this morning, and I, and I hope I can help you. Uh, and you know what? I'll tell you what. I like being in church, and as I look back over my short, uh, just under 50 years of being alive, you must feel pretty ancient when I say under 50, amen, um, and, uh, but at any rate, uh, I look at it, it's just natural to be in church on a Sunday morning, it is just natural, and I, and I think sometimes maybe those of us who are raised in church possibly take that for granted just a little bit, but I was thinking about that, and it's a blessing. I look back over my entire life, and I was not only raised to be in church, but now I'm glad that I sure was. Amen. And I look, uh, hopefully, that my kids uh, will also, Lord willing, if they do, and if not, the Lord knows where they live. Amen. He'll get a hold of them. He'll shake them up. He'll shake you and me up every now and then. Amen. But it's just a good, it's my desire as your preacher just to be a help. Just to be a help. That doesn't mean I'm not going to. Uh, chop your Johnson grass, amen, but it's my desire to be a help to God's people, and that's all I've ever wanted to do. Now, I'll admit this, the Lord's got to make the man before he can make the message, and that's why he sent me over into the wilderness for a number of years before he brought me into the desert, amen, <laughs> but uh, God's got to make the man before he makes the message, but here in Joshua chapter 10, we preached through the first about 15 verses last week, and we got some help from Joshua, if you recall. We had to get some help from Joshua. Remember the Gibeonites, they, uh, they deceived everybody to, trying to tell them they were somebody they weren't. You've never done that, I know that, amen. But uh, then they had to have to get help from Joshua because then everybody wanted to kill him. That's just like you as a believer. Uh, the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, yes, your eternity is set, secured, fixed forever, and never ever going to change. But now you realize that the world is after you. And so we had to get some help from Joshua. And uh, I just want to hopefully... Uh, move forward in this chapter here and uh, we realized last week that when we asked Joshua our Joshua I say our Joshua that's Jesus Christ for help he always comes through whether he's got to work all night amen to get things figured out while you and I are sleeping counting sheep instead of the shepherd amen but uh, whenever we need help and we call on him for help he always comes through uh, he delivers us uh, he puts away our fears amen and uh, so the Gibeonites, they get the deliverance they need. And here's we pick it up in verse 15. Uh, it's interesting to me because these five kings that were originally going to wipe out Gibeon, 
Well, plans have changed. Now they're on the run. <laughs> and so these five kings, what do they do? They go hole up in a cave somewhere. I've always thought that, and why in the world they, you know, they must have, I, I don't know, you put five independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptists in a cave, there'd be blood running underneath the stone within three days, I guarantee you, amen? There'd be some doctrinal dispute or some, you know, some pet peeve that irritated the fire out of you, and, well, I'm really out of this camp. But anyways, there's five kings, and they hole up in this cave, and that's what I'm going to preach about today. And uh, uh, this is all about, this whole rest of this chapter, we know historically what happens here, amen? They all get it in the neck. We know historically and doctrinally that one day this is going to repeat itself and that Jesus Christ will come back at the second advent, amen? And over in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 11, he'll have the sun and moon stop again. And when he comes back, uh, it's no more Mr. Nice Guy, as they say, right? We know historically and doctrinally this will happen again, but what I'd like to preach about through this thing is practically... And if you would, just for a moment, consider with me that these five kings are a representation of hidden sins. Hidden sins. I want you to think about that, and I'd like to try to preach this morning about hidden sins. I, I know, right? Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you, too. <coughs> You're like, I thought you were going to preach something with a bow on it, preacher. But I'd like you to consider for a moment that these five kings, and as the chapter envelops, it is just a, a, a multitude of eye-opening things for me and for you, how to deal with these hidden sins, with these hidden sins. And I'd like to go ahead and just jump right into the thing. And never forget, never forget, Christian, that your hidden sins were taken care of by our Joshua at Calvary. Amen? But for whatever reason, they like to run back and hide in certain places, don't they? They were delivered at Calvary, but they like to run back and hide in certain places in our life. Let me show you this first thing, first of all, this morning. I want you to see sin's representation here in verses 15 to 17. Sin's representation, your hidden sins, like we just said, uh, sins that are hidden away in your body of your sinful flesh are just like those five kings that are hiding in the cave at Makeda here. Joshua chapter 10, verse 16, the Bible says, But these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. I was thinking some of the most likely places for these hidden sins and these kings to hide are going to be your mind. That's the likely places for these kings to hide, ain't it? Your mind, these hidden sins. They hide in your mind. They, they hide out in your thoughts. And my goodness, they even hide out in your imaginations, don't they? That's, a, that's like these, these five kings. That's a likely hiding place. And, and you've got to remember, Christian, that a, a devil can get in and counterfeit your thoughts. I want you to listen to me just for a second. A devil can get in, the devil can get in and counterfeit what you're thinking. And he can counterfeit uh, your imagination. You ever, uh, you ever start thinking about something or uh, have some kind of wild imagination? You're like, what am I doing? And you're like, that ain't me. <laughs> or is it me? And you're psychotic is what you are. You're like, Why in the world would you think that, right? Maybe it's a devil. You ever just stop and think if you're actually doing the thinking after all? I'm just trying to be real with you. I mean, you ever just stop and think, am I the one doing the thinking? Is the Lord the one doing the thinking? Or is the devil doing the thinking? You ever had those moments in your life? Maybe even this week? You've got to watch your thoughts. 
Uh, you really got to be careful. You got to ask, who's doing the thinking here? Because if I'm not doing the thinking, who is, right? That's why it's so dangerous, Christian, to just let everything go. That's why I look forward to the day when you and I, amen, in eternity with a perfect mind and a perfect body, we never have to check our thoughts again. That's going to be a real blessing. Why? Because you have to check every thought you have right now. You got to check it. You got to check it out. Well, you better check your thoughts. Now, this de the devil, he can get in and counterfeit your thoughts. He can counterfeit your imagination. He can counterfeit your mind. And the devil did that with Peter, remember? He did that with Peter over in Matthew chapter, uh, what is it, uh, chapter 16, verses 22 to 23. I'll read the passage here. But he, counter he, got, he got a hold of Peter there. And the Bible says, Then Peter took him, talking about Jesus, began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from, me, far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Talking about going to the cross. But he turned, and that's the Lord, and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You see that? Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. you got to check your thoughts. You can't let them wander. We sing that little kid song, Don't let your mind go a-wandering, right? A-wandering on sinful things. You can't let your mind wander. you got to keep it under control. But that sure does go against the grain, doesn't it? That goes against this world's way of thinking. This world's way of thinking is just let it go, you know. <laughs> just kick back and have a good time and relax and unplug and stop being so uh, prudish about things. Just let it go. It'd be okay. But uh, you better check your thoughts. And it might not be you doing the thinking at all. And like I said, you've got to ask this question. Is this me doing the thinking? Is this the devil doing the thinking? Or is it the Lord doing the thinking? You've got to remember, Christian, and you can't get so deceived. You've got to remember that the devil can get control of certain parts of your life and make it his possession. You say, I don't believe it. It don't matter what you believe. You just saw in Matthew chapter 16 that the devil had control of that conversation. And so instead of answering Peter, Jesus Christ answers the devil. And uh, Satan can fill a believer just like the Holy Spirit. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I'll give you two verses here. We won't spend a whole lot of time in this. I want you to think about these are hidden sins. Hidden sins and there's a likely hiding place going to be your mind, your thoughts, or your imagination. Now over here in Ephesians chapter 5, you know what he says. I'm guessing... Uh, the, the Christians at Ephesus, they might have had a little problem with the bottle, you know. A little problem with, uh, you know, tipping it every now and then. And uh, he says in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 18. The Bible says here, And be not drunk with wine, where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I want you to see there in that verse is you're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Now take a look at this real quick in uh, Proverbs chapter 25. The Bible says you're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. And that's why you're not supposed to be drunk, because there's a different filling there. But over here in Proverbs chapter 25, here's an interesting verse of Scripture that everyone needs to think about. Proverbs chapter 25, look at verse 28. The Bible says here, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls, you see the comparison, you see the similitude, the like, likelihood there, is like a city that is broken down without walls. So if the walls are down and you're not ruling, you're not in charge, you're not in control, which by the way our parents and grandparents used to teach us that, to be in control, 
You see where we're going here? It's no longer taught. We're no longer taught to be in control. We're now taught, I'm getting ahead of myself, but we're now taught it's okay to be out of control. No, it's not. The Bible says, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So if we're like this city with no rule as a person and we have no walls and they're down, guess what? Everything else comes in. There's no defense. That's why we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit of God because if you're not filled with the Spirit of God today, let me guarantee you something, you are filled with something. Now, you knew what you want with that, but I want you to think about that because these hidden sins they had for the cave, they hold themselves up in the cave. And that likely hiding place is going to be your mind. <clears throat> now, let me tell you this. There's a book every Christian probably should read besides the Bible, and it's called War on the Saints. War on the Saints. And it's a book that come right on the heels of the Welsh Revival. And Evan Roberts was... a uh, one of the major preachers there, but it's written by, uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't care, it's written by a gal. Her name's Jesse Penn Lewis, called War on the Saints, put out in 1895. And that book is a discourse on practical demonology in the life of the Christian. One of the main points is this, and this is why I tell you that, every inch of ground you yield to the devil is possessed by his devils or demons. I'll say it again. Every inch of ground you yield to the devil is possessed by him or his demons. And uh, any place in your life where you disobey God and disobey the commands of Scripture is that much ground you have yielded to Satan. Uh, so to get that, back, that ground back, it takes more than confession. Stay with me now, because this is where it gets real. It takes more than confession. You see, John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that takes care of confession, doesn't it? We confess our sin, he's faithful and just forgives our sins. And when you plead the blood of Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, that takes care of cleansing. But if you're going to get background, you're going to have to fight. And you're going to have to yield yourself to the Spirit of God, and you're going to have to go on the offensive, and you're going to have to learn how to fight. You just don't confess your sins and plead the blood, which is what you should do, and you don't get the ground back that way. That ground comes back by a fight, an active fight. James chapter 4, verse 7, you have to be submitted to God. Amen? Then you have to actively be resisting the devil. There's the fight. And now that 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, you have to be casting down every imagination and every high thing that exalted itself above the knowledge of Christ Jesus. It's an active fight. You're not going to get ground. You give up ground to the devil. You disobey God. You disobey his word. You give up ground to the devil. And you don't get it back by saying, Dear Lord, I'm really sorry I did that. He goes, You're forgiven and you're now clean, but you still don't have that ground back. Then you got to go on the offensive. You have to actively fight it. I hope it's making just a little bit of sense this morning. It involves yielding that unyielded part of your life to the control of the Holy Ghost. You're going to have to actively resist the devil, submit yourself to God, and cast everything else down and go on the offensive. Well, that's sin's representation. Sin's representation is those kings, those are a picture of hidden sins in the life of every believer. And everybody's got them. Some people got them in the cave and they don't even know they're there. Until the devil pulls on your chain. Now let me show you this number two. We had sin's representation. I'll show you in verse 18, sin's solution. The solution for these hidden sins is found in verse 18. The Bible says, And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave and set men by it for to keep them. You see that there? And that's exactly what you and I have to do to those hidden sins. 
you got to box it in and shut it up. You see the application? Those hidden sins, you know they're in there. You got to box it in and shut it up. You don't let it get loose and run rampant so it can destroy you. Tough stuff this morning. Now listen, there's two basic philosophies in this world. The first one is hedonism, and the second one is temperance. You've heard of both of those, right? All right, he, uh, hedonism says take the lid off all your devilment and let it run wild. That's hedonism. You know what temper temperance says? That's what our parents and grandparents taught us. Temperance says keep the lid on that thing and don't let it out to wreak havoc. You see what I mean? Now let me show you this. This country was founded on the philosophy of temperance. A lot of people talk about the good old days and what they're really talking about is a time in this country where men were more temperate than they are now. People say, well, we had a godly country. We didn't really have a godly country. We had a few people that did believe in God and were Christians, so forth and so on. But what you're dealing with and what you need to wrap your mind around is 100 to 200 years ago, you lived in a country that was much more temperate. They were not hedonistic. They believed that you needed to keep the lid on things. Uh, when I was in high school, the phrase came out saying, well, they're all coming out of the closet. Well, guess what? Your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents kept the cotton-picking closet nailed shut. That's what I'm saying. It wasn't, look how more godly they are and look at how much. It's not that at all. It's just the fact that we are no longer a temperate society and the hidden sins are way out in the open. So what does Joshua do? He says, you five kings, they're hidden in that cave. You take some stones and you block it up and you guard it. The country was founded on the philosophy that men are basically evil. Therefore, you had to put a check on what? You had to put a check on government. Everybody still believes that, don't they? You got to check the government. That's what your country was founded on, temperance. They believe, listen now, that men were basically evil. If you're here today and you believe that men are basically good, you do not read the Bible. This country, back in the 15th and 1600s and 1700s, knew that man was basically evil. So they said you had to put a check on government. You had to put a check on rulers, checks and balances, right? That is temperance. And then you know what? They even believed you had to put a check on yourself. In schools, the founders knew the same about children. You say, what's that, preacher? That children are basically evil. And if anything good is going to come out of a child, it's because you have to take the time, you have to put the lid on their devilment, you can't let it out, you can't let them do whatever the Sam Hill they want, and you've got to put the good into them. Amen. You see where I'm coming from this morning. That's not the country that you and I live in. This is the most hedonistic society that you and I have ever lived in. They say, do whatever you want. Do what feels good. You like this kind of music? Well, let's get more and more rowdy and more crude and more ridiculous. Well, Joshua said, you better take some stones. You better seal up that cave. You cannot let that devilment out. And Christian, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to learn you can't let your devilment run free. Educated and egotistical men today say, well, they were hypocrites back then. They were just as wicked as we are today. That's what they'll say. 
They just pretended to be better. No, they didn't. They just tried to keep the lid on their baser instincts. This generation does not. This generation, now listen, you know I'm telling the truth, but that's because it's so stinking quiet in here this morning. This generation does not keep the lid on any of their baser instincts. They say, express yourself. You want to be a weirdo? Go be weird. That's what they say. It's natural. No, it's not natural. It's devilment that needs to be throttled back, stuck in a cave, and put some stones up, and then you guard it. I'm trying to take you back about 150 years, so I expect to be met with a little bit of resistance. They just tried to keep the lid on their basic instinct. If you want to know what's wrong with this country since probably about 1920, it's the sick philosophy that has damned this nation, which is this. Don't try to control anything, just let it loose. After all, think about it. When you were a teenager and in your parents' home, they wanted to restrict you because they knew it was good for you. But you fought it. And you were irritated about it. And you said things behind their back because you didn't have guts to say it in their face. Amen. But what they were doing is they are trying to keep the lid on your own devilment. But you know what we do now? Oh, go ahead. You want to be a queer? Go ahead. Be a queer. You want to be this or that? Go ahead. You want to act like a dog today? Go ahead. And this country says, the lid's off. Let it run wild. That's hedonism. Joshua said, you better stick a couple stones on there, and you put a guard on the thing, and don't let it out. Let me tell you what, I know most of you here today are saved, and I trust you are, but if you don't put those hidden sins back in that cave and seal that thing tight with the Word of God, you'll let an animal out that you can't control. You've got to keep it under control. And you're the only one that can control you. If you don't control, I'll give you a couple examples this morning. We're having a good time, amen. But if you don't control the liquor, you know what you get? You get a nation of drunks, and now eventually, 2023, you got a nation of dope addicts. And you know what they said? Well, there's nothing wrong with it. Okay? That's why we now have more rehab clinics in every county than you have. I, I remember as a kid, there was no rehab clinics in this town. If it was, it was something that you had to go through a doctor to get. You see what I mean? We took the lid off of liquor. You say, you preach about liquor? I never preach against liquor. I'm preaching against it today. You take the lid off pornography, you know what you have? Now you have, you got, now, now you got a nation full of sex perverts. And you got, you got fornication and sodomy taught in the high school and the school system and the campuses and the colleges all across this country. Why? We just said, let it run wild. And now in your own government, you have set up you have set up legislation to allow all the deviancy you want in the world with state and, uh, state and federal support. They'll legislate it. Why? They took the lid off it. They took the stones away from the cave. I'm telling you, you know what we need to do today? We need to go get some stones and plug that cave. And set a guard, David said, set a watch, oh Lord, about my lips. You need to set some stones in front of that cave today. Don't let it out. You start teaching evolution, you know what you got? You start teaching that all kids come from animals. That's what they teach, isn't it? Then they start acting like a bunch of wild animals. Been in the schools lately? 
You see how they act? Can't control them. They can't do anything about it. They got mouths worse than truckers. At least truckers, you can understand what a trucker says every once in a while, or a sailor. You can't understand what these kids say. I'm telling the truth. I'm not, I'm not preaching. Now I'm telling the truth. Amen. You teach the kids are wild animals, and now what are they acting like? You want to know why I have a school shooting? Yeah, those darn guns, preacher. Hey, got nothing to do with the guns. It has to do that you taught your kids that now they're a bunch of wild animals. And you know what the law of, uh, of evolution is? It is kill or be killed. They took, the, they took the stones away from the cave, and they let all the devil men out. You can't do that. They're hidden sins inside every individual. Well, I'll give you number three here. I'm going to give you victories appropriation in chapter, uh, verses 19 to 21. And here's how you complete, you appropriate the complete victory provided to you in Christ. It's found in verse 19. Notice this. Verse 19 says, And stay ye not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. You say, what are you saying? Well, if you're going to appropriate the complete victory, it takes persistence. You cannot be lax. Boy, this country is all about being lax. We're, we're approaching a time, and I'm not trying to uh, ruin your party. You've got to be persistent. You can't be lax. That's what the devil wants you to do. The devil wants you to, oh, it's okay. I could just take the next couple weeks off of my Bible reading. I can take the next couple weeks off of really trying to get in touch with the Lord. I can take the next couple weeks off and, because I'm going to be around some family members and, you know, they're probably not saved, so uh, I just won't talk about the things that I probably should talk about. And, you see what I mean? You've got to be persistent. You can't be lax to appropriate the complete victory. I'm just saying this. Fighting sin is a lifetime battle. It's a lifetime battle. In case you forgot this morning, Fighting sin is a lifetime battle. Just about the time when you think you got something licked, you got to fight it again. A lifetime battle. Now look at Joshua chapter 11. Here's a, great, here's a great application. The next chapter over, if you look at chapter 11, verse 18, here's the application. This is the weirdest verse stuck right in the middle of the northern campaign. Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. You see it? Sin's a lifetime battle. He said, it says Joshua made war. Yeah, and you're going to have to make war too a long time on all these hidden sins in your life. He said, well, thank God, preacher, I'm going into the Christmas season and they're all stuck in the cave. Good, you can't get lax. You've got to be persistent. Why? Because God delivered it into your hands, but now you've got to go after it. Got to go after it. The greatest Christian in the New Testament fought against it all his life. The Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, he says, uh, the things that I do, uh, I, the things that I allow, I do not. The things that, you see what I'm saying? He fought it all his life. It was a constant fight. And I'll tell you, if it was a one and done thing at Calvary, why in the world would the Apostle Paul tell you in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, to mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth? You have to constantly, continually, and daily fight. Fight. Preacher, I don't like to fight. I don't know what to tell you. You can't get lax. You've got to be persistent. You've got to keep the stone on the cave. You've got to keep a guard outside the stone. You cannot let the devilman out. The Lord's delivered the enemy, and now you've got to go after it. Got to go after it. 
Paul, was, he wasn't a fellow who just preached one thing and believed another. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, I die daily. He was telling the truth. You can't get lax. Now, I want you to notice this. If you're not persistent in the attack of sin in your life, this is what's going to happen. It'll gain a stronghold and be harder for you to get a hold of. Did you catch a hold of that? If you're not persistent, that sin will gain a stronghold in your life and be harder for you to get it out of there. Look at verse 19. What, Paul, what, Paul, Paul, what did Joshua say? He said in verse 19, Suffer them not to enter into their cities. I wonder why he said that. Well, here's the thing. Because the enemy wants to get hold up in a fenced city and it'll be harder to get it out. And that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 20. End of verse 20, that the rest which remained of them entered into fast fenced cities. Some of those Amorites that got away and entered into the fenced city, you say, why? Israel wasn't quick enough. Which is a real shame, and I'm not trying to hold them to an impossibility standard, which is a real shame when the Lord said, I've delivered them into your hands. They just weren't quick enough. You say, what happened? I'm guessing some of them didn't really want to fight. I'm guessing, I might be wrong, but I'm guessing if the Lord said, I've delivered them into your hands, and Joshua said, you better get them, you better get them before they get into some other area of your life, and now it's harder to get out, because now it's not just, now it's not just in the open. You see, God's going to deal with you, and maybe he dealt with you this last week on certain things, and they're isolated, and you can see it, but once that thing goes into a fenced city, into a different part of your life, it's harder to see, and it's harder to get out. You've got to be persistent. You've got to get it out while you can. That's exactly what happened. Israel wasn't quick enough. Wasn't quick enough. Well, let me give you number four here. I want you to see in verses 22 to 27, sin's identification and disposition. Sin's identification and disposition. Now, I put these points together because that's how my brain operates. Some of you might not operate that way, but I have, to, I have to see this thing systematically laid out. I have a systematic brain. <laughs> I'm not saying that's the best brain to have, but I'm a very systematic thing. It's, it's got to be A, B, and C. You know what I mean? But I see sin's uh, identification and disposition in uh, verses 22 to 27. <clears throat> and what has to happen here is you've got to bring your hidden sins to Jesus Christ for disposal. You see that? Now look, the reason you're stuffing those five kings in the cave is because you, you're, you're, you don't want the lid off the devilment. Amen? But once committed, once those sins are committed, and they get out in the open, you've got to bring them to Jesus Christ for disposal. You can't just let them run wild. You got to bring those to Jesus Christ for disposal. Notice here, once committed, you got to bring your sins out into the open to Joshua. That's verse 22. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. See that? You got to bring them to Joshua. That's our Jesus. And once committed, you know what you got to do, verse 23? You got to name them. In verse 23, he names every single one. Oh, we know the song, count your blessings, name them one by one. But when you sin against the holy God, do you name them one by one? Joshua does, right here. He brings them out in the open, out you go, so everybody can see it. 
and now you name it, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Deber, and what's the other one? Two more. But you name them. You, thank you. You bring them out in the open, 22. You name them one by one in 23, and notice what happens in 24. You know what happens in 24? Once committed, you got to bring them out in the open, name them one by one, and then you put them all down in front of Joshua. You got to put all your sins down in front of Jesus Christ. Down they go. Just like this. Right there. There it is. You put your foot on it. I got it. Got it. You sucker. You've been plaguing me, and you're going to get it. And you get mad at that thing. And you bring it out, you name it, that thing that there I did, that thing I said. Here it, here it is, Lord. What are we going to do with this thing? He's like, ah, I'm going to give you something to do with that in just a minute here. You see that? Once committed, you've got to put them all down in front of Joshua. There's a song written back in 1769 by William Cowper, Oh, for a closer walk with God. About the third verse, I'm not going to sing it. He says, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. That's what you got to do. Whatever it is, you got to tear it out. One time, a long time ago, a teenage boy put up, I, I, you, I don't know if they do that anymore. I'm probably too far removed, but as a kid, I wasn't allowed to do it, and I'm glad I wasn't. But these kids, they put all kinds of uh, posters on their wall. I remember going to some friend's house and they have, you know, they have like Van Halen posters and, you know, ACDs and stupid stuff like that. And, you know, some, some chick and some uh, swimsuit model up there. And a long time ago, as Count goes, this boy put up a bunch of posters in his bedroom wall and rock groups, so forth and so on. And a bunch of scandal cad gals up there, like, you know, normal rotten teenage boys do, because that's stuff she's in her mind. But you got good parents, they keep that thing holed up in the cave and you ain't bringing it out, right? let it let it out. And his mother, his mother went in the room to clean his room. I don't know why she'd be cleaning his room, but she must have been a real good mama, amen. <laughs> but uh, she goes in his room and saw that. She didn't say a word. She went and got one big old, big old blue ribbon family Bibles and cut out a full picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. And goes right up in the middle there and put Jesus Christ on the cross right up there and pinned it right up there. And she left the room after she cleaned it. She came back in a week later and all those pictures were down except for Jesus Christ. We know he's not on the cross, just an illustration here. And she went to her son and said, son, I know she took everything down but Jesus. He says, yeah, mama, when Jesus Christ goes up, everything else comes down. And that's what you got to do. When Jesus Christ comes up, Everything else in your life has got to come down. It's got to come down. We're dealing with sin's identification and disposition here. Notice in verse 24 that Joshua has the elders and come put their feet on the necks of those kings. He said, isn't that weird? It's just an Eastern thing. You know, I believe it was. It's to give them confidence. You see, they had the southern campaign coming up in 28, 29, 30, all the way to 43. And over there, what is it in verse... Uh, 24, is it? I believe it's a given confidence in the upcoming battle. Verse, yeah, verse 2843. And, uh, and so Joshua hadn't put the next on there. You know what he tells him? Is this what the Lord's going to do to everybody else? 
You know, there's a, one of the greatest things in the world, Christian, is to finally, uh, you, you see a sin that's been troubling you and been dogging you and been keeping you down. One of the greatest things in the world is to finally get that thing underneath your foot. And the Lord gives you victory. You know, it does give you confidence to go fight the battle against other sins that pop up in your life. And you got to get that thing down. And you know what? The thing, here's the thing. If the king tries to rise back up, you got to knock him back down again and get him back down again. And you keep knocking him down until he stays down. You see what I mean? You say, I, I tried. I, I, I had victory once. Once. Remember, this is a lifelong battle. And you finally get that thing down that's been plaguing you and you get victory. Man, that thing's a blessing. Man, I tell you what, you feel like you're 10 feet tall and bulletproof, you walk out of there. And it gives you confidence to go fight other sins in your life. Confidence. Confidence. When the king gets back up from under your feet, you got to knock it down and keep knocking it down until it stays down. You know, Christians of this generation, we quit too easy. <laughs> I checked out some numbers here as well. James Dyson. Failed 5,126 times before he finally got the bagless vacuum right. <laughs> 5,126 times before he finally got it right. I probably would have stopped at three. You see, and that's what we do. I, I don't know whether Mr. Dyson's saved or not. I mean, he's got a product that's a real pick-me-up, amen. 5,126... <laughs> <laughs> that was the pastoral version of what I thought, amen. But 5,126 5, times he failed, and he kept going. Theodore Seuss Geisel had his first book rejected 27 times before Dr. Seuss became published. <laughs> 27 times, only to find out the wimpy people in 2023 would be offended by green eggs and ham. Right? So what are you saying? You can't quit. It might beat you once or twice. You've got to go after it again. And when the king gets up, you knock it back down and you put your foot on its neck and you confess it and you plead the blood and you keep going every single day. Abraham Lincoln went into the army as a captain. He came out as a private. <laughs> so how does that even work? I have no idea. He also lost more elections than he won. Walt Disney was told by his producer, his first producer, that he lacked imagination. <laughs> oh, man. And that he would never become a success. But he didn't quit, did he? I'm not telling you to be a, a Walt Disney. I'm not telling you to be a James Dyson. I'm not telling you to be a Dr. Seuss. But there's something to that. Albert Einstein, in his early days, doctors thought he was mentally handicapped. Come to find out he was one of the brightest minds science had to offer at that time, which I understand doesn't mean much to some people. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says over in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, for a just man falls seven times, riseth up again. Let me tell you what, Christian, you've got to get your foot on the neck of that king and come out of that cave. And when he gets back up, you push him down, you knock him back down, you step, you step on him again, you say, now stay there! And he fights a while, and you got a good grasp on him. All of a sudden, he wiggles free. You go get him again. Get him under your, under your foot. And you got to keep fighting. 
Got to keep fighting. Well, let me give you this one, number five. I want to give you victory's lifelong application. Victory's lifelong application, bringing this thing into a landing. Victory's lifelong application is found in chapters 28 to 43. You got to remember that if you're going to get continually victory over sin and temptation, you're going to have to use the word of God against the enemy just like Jesus Christ did. Over there in Matthew chapter 4, the devil come up to him in the wilderness three times. Every time the devil came to him, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now notice this thing here. Again, this is a type of the believer's spiritual warfare. And our weapon, Christian, our weapon is not a Glock. It's not a Springfield. It's not a Mauser. It's not an AK. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4.12, it's a two-edged sword. That's the only weapon you and I got. Right here, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 is the sword of the Spirit. That's what we got. And if you're going to get complete lifelong victory, you're going to have to use that sword. What can we glean from this boring passage from verse 28 to 43? A lot, but I'll give you just a couple. Look at verse 28. Notice he says, and smote it with the edge of the sword. How about verse 30? And smote it with the edge of the sword. 32, and smote it with the edge of the sword. Now, interesting enough, though, in 32, notice there it takes the second day to get it done. Isn't that interesting? Or is it just boring? On the second day, it says, they got it. Well, how about verse uh, 35? And smote it with the edge of the sword. 37, and smote it with the edge of the sword. Uh, 39, and smote it with the edge of the sword. So not only are you going to need the word of God to fight the enemy like Christ did, but in this boring list of repetition, you've got to learn this. First of all, some battles can be won in one day. Christian, sometime you're going to go into battle and you're going to whip it in one day. But like Lachish, guess what? It's going to take two days. And then notice out of these six cities, some are not given a timeline. You know what that tells me once again? You're going to fight sin all your life. All your life. Joshua eleven eighteen, And Joshua made war a long time. Some you can whip right away. Sometimes it takes two days to do it. And sometimes you might fight something all your life. Some people think themselves so wicked that they're tempted, but it is not wrong to be tempted. It's only wrong when you yield to the temptation. But fight! you got to fight! And not only that, but the Lord puts the details of verses 28 to 43 in there, so I believe, number one, you and I can learn the historical nature of how God deals with men. You say, preacher, come on, man. We were going somewhere, but you just literally went off the rails. No, really. First of all, you have a history book in your lap. You know why it's important to learn how God deals with men? Because if you don't get right and your country doesn't get right, God's going to deal with this country the same way he dealt with those. And not only that, but this repetition business and smote it with the edge of the sword and smote it with the edge of the sword and smote it with the edge of the sword and uh, bell and a pomegranate, bell and a pomegranate. You know why that's important? Because the more you repeat a matter, the more you learn it thoroughly. And so that at any situation you're in in your Christian life, if you've repeated the matter enough, your first response can be what God wants done. You know why we fail many times? We ain't been in that book enough. We haven't repeated enough. We don't know the right response to it. Our teachers in, in school and grade school, they say, let's do your timetables. 
One times one is one. One times two is two, right? And you're bored to death with it, and by the time you got in sixth grade or seventh grade, it used to be, you knew all that stuff. Why? Repetition, repetition, repetition. So you need to repeat this stuff so you know how God deals with it historically so he don't do it to us and our country. And number two, we need to know it because so we can respond the right way. You got some kings hiding in the cave maybe. This would be a great time for some of them to start slipping back out. Have my wife come to the organ this morning and begin to play something. As we close the book on chapter 10, the old hymn writer's words come to my mind once more. You know the hymn. This verse says, Do the tears flow down your cheeks unbidden. Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. Have you sins that two men's eyes are hidden? Tell it to Jesus alone. And then you tell it to our Joshua. That's our Jesus. You bring him out of the cave. You name him. You put them all down in front of Joshua. You take the sword of the Spirit and you kill him. With confidence you continue a lifelong battle against the enemy through the power of God. And you don't let up. Why don't you take a moment this morning and talk to our Joshua about what's in that cave. And if the Lord's spoken to you this morning, why don't you just come talk to him?